Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Ramadan Mubarak to you and yours. This Ramadan, as we all gather to share a meal with our loved ones, we need to remember those in Gaza who are also gathering to share a meal with so many who aren't there that were just there a year ago. Since October the 7th, the Human Development Fund has assisted over 200,000 people in Gaza, providing them with essential aid, such as food baskets, water, hot meals, winter items, shelter, hygiene kits, and baby formula. Your generous contributions are making a significant impact, especially in Rafah. Let's sustain this momentum and continue providing crucial support during this sacred and blessed month. Please visit hdfund.org slash qalam. That's hdfund.org slash qalam, Q-A-L-A-M, to learn more about our global reach this Ramadan and choose where you'd like to direct your support during this blessed month. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this month a time of mercy, solace, acceptance, and triumph for the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And may Allah continue to use all of us as a means and never replace us. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. This is Abdul Nasir Jengda and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqa Jariya on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us. Jazakumullahu khayran. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Alhamdulillah, you are now standing on the while educating the companions So today we start with point number um, four. that how Nabi catered his teachings to the individual that he was talking to. There is a narration in which Rasulullah said that treat people according to their rank. Similarly, that when you talk to people, cater your conversation to their intelligence. The way you present an issue 
to a young child is clearly different from the way you present it to someone in their adolescence, to someone who is older, a young professional, to a senior head of a family, to an elderly person. Each of those people carry their own intelligence, their own experience. And while teaching a subject, one of the things that you need to assess is which part of this subject is mandatory upon this individual right now in their life. What do they need to know? And then on top of that, we also need to ask ourselves that what part of my conversation will be beneficial to this person? How is it going to help them? It's common for people to um, come to a class on fiqh and Islamic jurisprudence and on day one to have all the details presented at once. So for example, you'll say to the student that today the lesson is that that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala while telling us to the fara'id of wudu tells us that we must wash our feet to cover the sifas every day. So now then one student says, okay, washing your feet, so what about uh, wiping over the feet? What about wiping over socks? What about wiping over leather socks? What about wiping over a mona'al sock? What about my wiping over a cotton sock? What defines a cotton sock? What is the delete for and against for all the people who hold the positions of wiping over a cotton sock versus washing a foot and those who allow it and those who don't allow it? So that's when you tell the student, tone it down. How about we go back to what the Quran says and stick with the basics and fundamentals of today's lesson and gradually, slowly work our way up. The student will want it all at once because that's their appetite. That give me more, give me more, give me more. But it's the teacher's responsibility to know how to piece out the meal for the student. That this is what you are going to take today, and the next part of this lesson will have another time. So when we studied Islamic law, jurisprudence, the first text that we read was It's a very basic book. You know, it's one of those books that you can memorize it off by heart. Ibadat. And then after that, we studied a book called Al-Mukhtasar by Imam Quduri and then after that you would study Al-Ikhtiyar Al-Ta'lil Al-Mukhtar and after that you would cover Kanzu Al-Qa'i thereafter you would go to Al-Hidayah and then you know during or after Hidayah you would study Sharh Ma'ad Al-Athar Imam Tahawis where now you're looking at it from a Hadith perspective so in each of these books if you're wondering why am I naming random books what's common is that all of these books are on the same subject the ultimate subject of fiqh but there's gradual growth. One of them, just from a page's perspective, is a small few pages, two more pages, two more pages, two more, two more, two volumes, and now you're sitting at the base of the well and you're able to understand it. This is the benefit of learning things gradually. That someone says, I want to learn the whole Quran, well, slow down. This is going to take time if we want to do it right. And in that case, we're going to have to piecemeal this. And that's what the responsibility of the teacher is, to understand what will benefit the student and what will not benefit them. Don't think what will excite them. Something could excite the student, but not be beneficial. And there could be something that may or may not be exciting, but based off of your assessment, this is what is going to benefit that person. 
So Rasulullah took this into consideration. And I think one of the greatest um, uh, manifestations of this is the response that Rasulullah, or the responses Rasulullah gave to the general question, This question repeated itself in different you know, forms. And the question was, what's the best deed? Right? What's the best thing? Which Muslim is the most superior? What's the best deed? And every time someone came to Rasulullah with this question, he gave them an answer that was suitable and appropriate to the individual. Therefore, taking into consideration the person that he was talking to, knowing that if the wrong answer is given to that person, they won't be able to benefit from that knowledge. Yes, go ahead. Consideration of individual differences in students. Rasulullah was extremely watchful of the individual differences of the students. You'll have one student that has experience or maybe even exposure to gatherings of knowledge where this person has studied with teachers over the years. The way you interact with that student is going to be very different for someone who's walked through the door for the first time into one of these gatherings of knowledge, who's wearing their social justice warrior cape when they walk into the gathering. The conversations are going to be different. The way you present an issue will be very different versus someone who is seasoned and understands the usul, the principles that the ulama base their arguments on. So when I'm teaching a class and there's a student who has spent time uh, in some sort of Islamic educational environment. Here I'm speaking of an environment that in which a student is cultured, where they actually benefit from the greater scope of Islamic scholarship. Like for example, they've gone to a Medina university, they've gone to an Asad university, they've gone to a Malaysian university, they've gone to a madrasa system, the madrasa nizamiya system, the curriculum, you know, the, the, the subcontinent system. You'll notice that just the way they carry themselves and they speak and the way the arguments are constructed and the way they analyze issues, it's, 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 a, it's the, the differences of night and day. If you listen to a scholarly person, someone that has studied the deen, ask a question, there is a big difference from someone that has not spent time in circles of knowledge and is new to this area. Just the way the questions are asked, right? Um, what kind of questions are asking? What, you know, what are they trying to get out of this conversation? You can tell so much about a person by the way they phrase their question, where their mind is and where they're engaging with that subject matter. So as a teacher, that needs to be taken into consideration, though, what kind of person am I dealing with? This by no means is to say that one student is superior over the other. So the person that's coming into the masjid for the first time to study the deen, or may have done this a few times, and they made their way to a gathering of knowledge or they're sitting in your classroom, you won't discard them in any way at all. The methodology of Rasulullah was to accommodate every person, every person from the Ummah. Nabi was patient with the Muslim and the non-Muslim. So when we're talking about a Muslim community, a Muslim classroom, everyone needs to be taken into consideration. However, now what's your responsibility as a teacher to adjust according to that student? Find 
a bridge, find examples, find words that accommodate and care for that person. Right? This is wisdom. This is Ainu Hikma. This is wisdom. Someone will call it that all oh, these uh, scholars are overly compassionate and they don't speak the truth the way it is. They should have one answer to everyone regardless of what their walk of life is, as if Islamic law is a copy and paste situation that everyone, regardless of what their circumstances are, will always be given the same answer. And this is not how it works. Otherwise, why would we even have uh, muftis exist about Islamic history? Why would people go to them if their ruling for every person was the same? It was, if it was a copy and paste situation. The ahkam of the deen, the rulings of the deen, change from individual to individual. And that what make, that's what makes our deen so amazing that it takes the individual into consideration. Now, obviously, there are some scenarios where the individual doesn't change the ruling the way we pray salah, regardless of your height, regardless of your background. Salah is one salah. That's it. But in other aspects, you will find both plays a role. And even when it comes to salah, if you have a handicap or something that's holding you back, sharia will will accommodate you in that moment because the individual must be taken into consideration when you are passing your ruling. So as a teacher as well, you need to take that into mind. Now I'm teaching a class, for example, and this is a common scenario that I'm teaching a class at, you know, at Sunday school or Islamic school or even the seminary. And I have a particular experience. My experience is that I studied at a madrasa and the students that were with me let's run this scenario, are from one general ethnic background. In comes a student from another ethnic background with a whole different life experience, a different economical sort of experience of their growth and family structure was very different. This person has their own unique challenges. Now, as a teacher, I'm forcing my experience on the student that it better work. You need to do this. You have to do this. Without taking that individual's experience into consideration, who they are, their essence. So what happens in this scenario when you don't take the individual into, you know, into consideration is you end up eliminating that person altogether and you're basically, um, you're taking your version, your reality and slapping it on them, kind of like a, you know if you have like a, a messed up wall, rather than repairing the wall, you're just taking a new wall and slapping it on them. If what I'm saying sounds cryptic, I can spell it out for you. There are the cases and scenarios that I've seen, and I had an interaction recently with someone, of an individual who was saying to me that, you know, Sheikh, alhamdulillah, we recently built a masjid. This individual came for fundraising, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant Baraka in the project and allowed it to be a source of khayr for the ummah, inshallah. So I said, tell me about the project. Well, it's amazing, we're doing great work. We're in the Bronx, we acquired this, uh, this masjid. There was this masjid that was about to you know, be auctioned off, so we went in, long story. You know, it's an African-American community, they had a place. Unfortunately, someone did them wrong. The place was now being auctioned off. So he said, we came in and we saved it. I said, okay, that's, I mean, alhamdulillah, the masjid was saved from being auctioned off, that's a good part. So what's next? What did you do with the community? He said, well, alhamdulillah, now, um, uh, what did he say? He said, we have classes for Urdu being taught in the masjid every day. What do you mean? You're teaching Urdu to African-American Muslims? Why are you teaching the Urdu? 
He said, well, because all the bayans and khutbahs happened in Urdu, so we decided, you know what, we're just going to teach them Urdu first. Why don't you reverse the equation and learn a little English yourself? Now, I'm not being offensive here, I'm being honest. Why don't you learn, instead of teaching the whole Oma how to speak Urdu, and it's not going to help them when they go to Chick-fil-A to order their fries, it's not going to be of any use to them anywhere in their life. And the Muslim Urdu is You know, the whole thing, the whole conversation was absurd. You know, everyone's wearing Shabbat Kurta. Why are you making them wear Indian Pakistani clothes? Why are you telling people in your community to wear Indian Pakistani clothes? Well, what does that have to do with anything? What are you talking about? And then he, I, I remember him saying a few other things, and it became very clear to me. And I said to him, that Sheikh, if you want, to, he was senior to me, so I spoke, you know, I asked him, I said, Sheikh, I may say something with your permission, I'd like to say this. That if you are going to eliminate the individual from the individual that you're working with, if you're not going to take it into consideration at all, whatever gains you make, I fear that it's not going to be long-lasting. There won't be any true substance to it. Islam isn't here to change the individual at their essence and core. You need to be you. However, we need to turn you, we need to redirect your nafs and your qalb to be in line with the demands of revelation, with the commandments of revelation. So you can continue being you. So if you're a kid who's very snappy and very sharp and lippy, we just have to redirect that. You shouldn't want that to go away. If someone's talkative and they're very sharp, if that's directed properly, that could be such a beneficial thing to have in life. You know, it can help with a person's business career, it can help with their education career, you just have to teach that person, don't use it to be abusive to another person. Don't abuse anyone with your tongue. Use it for khayr. Your brain works fast. We just have to make sure that it's being used properly. This is what Rasulullah did. So Khalid bin Walid very carefully was redirected to be the general of the Muslim armies. They say regarding Khalid that he used to feel very sad because he didn't have much of the Quran memorized. He used to feel sad over it. And man, I wish I had more Qur'an memorized. I wish I had more Qur'an memorized. And the other Sahaba would say to him that Rasulullah directed you to be the leader in the battlefield because that's where you performed best. It wasn't that this guy was a general, so let's make him into a cook. It's not going to work. Right? That you take the individual into consideration. What is it that they're doing? Who is this person? Right? Therefore, the Quran tells us that every prophet was sent from their people. Are they familiar with the culture, familiar with the people? And also, they're able to engage with them uh, in a way where the individual is uh, taken into consideration. Yes, go ahead. Rasulullah was extremely watchful of the individual differences of the students whom he addressed and those who questioned him. He addressed each person according to the level of his understanding and in a manner which was appropriate to his status. He was considerate to those who were beginners and would not teach them that which he would impart to his senior students. We have examples of this. Explicit statements where Rasulullah would teach something to a senior Sahabi and say to him, do not teach this to another person. Explicitly, do not share this with other people. 
then you're wondering, how do we know about it? Well, then that Sahabi, specifically the riwayah that's coming ahead, I believe it's the Mu'ad radiallahu anh narration. Yeah, Mu'ad bin Jabal radiallahu anh narration. That Mu'ad bin Jabal radiallahu anh, before he passed away, فَأَخْبَرَ بِهَا مُعَاذُنَ عِنْدَ مَوْتِهِ تَأْثْمًا That before Mu'ad radiallahu anh passed away, he then shared that narration of Rasulullah because he did not want to be held accountable for withholding knowledge. And what was he holding back? Why did Nabi tell him not to share with someone else, with others? I'll, sh I'll explain that shortly, inshallah. And Imam Bukhari, while narrating this particular riwayah in his Sahih, the chapter heading of his is quite beautiful. He narrates this particular narration in Kitab al -Ilm. And the actual title of that chapter is Babun Man this is what Imam Bukhari titles that chapter. Babun man khassa bil ilmi qawman duna qawmin. That a person who specifically gives knowledge to one group of people and not another group of people. Why though? Karahiyata alla yafhamuna. Out of fear that the other group will not understand it. And that knowledge will become a fitna for them. Ibn Rajab. Um, Al-Hambali, he writes in his commentary on the narration. Again, the narration, we'll read it shortly. He says, Rasulullah told Mu'ad not to share this hadith with others, that he should keep it to himself. He explained why. The Prophet told him that if you tell everyone what I just told you, they'll stop focusing on their good deeds, and they'll just sit back thinking that I've said my shahada, Jannah is mine. So they'll get taqiyu. They'll just rely on that promise of Nabi Sallallahu and stop their juhd, stop their hard work. And Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala wants us to, you know, sacrifice and do good deeds and push ourselves, and they'll stop doing that. So there, after, after making the statement, the Rajab then writes, anna that from this Nabi Sallallahu prohibiting the companion Mu'ad al-Jabal from sharing this hadith with others, we can deduce that ahadith, statements of Nabi Sallallahu and traditions of the Prophet Sallallahu ahadith al-Rukhas, that involve concessions. Because the Prophet Sallallahu in the narration said the one who says shahada will go to paradise. That's a massive, that's a massive concession, right? So ahadith that involve concessions, la tusha'u fi nas should not openly be spread. It's not because the concessions are not for them, they're for everyone. But rather because then people will rely on those concessions and stop making themselves worthy of those concessions. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's rahmah is for everyone, but you need to make yourself worthy of that rahmah. <laughs> The Prophet shared this statement with Mu'ad, the one that says Shahada will go to paradise. Yet did Mu'ad decrease in worship or increase? He increased. And that's why the Prophet of Allah shared it with him because he had the ability to understand this knowledge and grow with it. Right? It allowed him to grow. As for someone like myself, if I was told that, I'd stop worshipping. 
I'd stop doing all that ibadah, I'd stop seeking knowledge because hashtag going to Jannah. So what's the need for me to do any ibadah any longer? So there's a difference between the awam al-nas and the khawas al-nas. Another thing now, why did Muhammad share it at his deathbed? The Prophet was specific to Muhammad not to share it. Some ulama they say this was because if there were some junior sahaba who acted upon the literal essence of the message, that would become a precedent for Muslims in the 21st century, in the 14th, 15th century. But since the Sahaba's example was that even after they were given all the glad tidings of Jannah, they never stopped doing Allah. They never stopped step back from their good deeds. They kept waking up for the Hajjud. They kept going in Jihad. They kept performing their Hajj and their Umrah. And they kept in their connection with the Quran. That remains now the legacy and the narrative that we have until the end of times. That knowledge and Amal are from cradle to the grave. That you never get comfortable with your own state. There is a famous incident regarding the great muhaddith and faqih, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, that he was on his deathbed and his son was next to him and there were some other people there. And the people were saying to him, Say the shahada. They were they weren't they were I mean they weren't telling him to say it, but they were saying the shahada in his presence trying to get him to say it so that he would be honored with the shahada before passing away. So as they were reciting the shahada in his presence, what was his response? What was his response? He kept saying, la, la, la. So this guy is saying there is no God but Allah. And what's this guy saying in return? No, and that's kind of like a whoops moment. Where if you're there, you're thinking, that's scary. This is a muhaddib. And people are saying the shahada in his presence, and he's saying no. He became unconscious. He then woke up. So someone said to him that we were saying to you, we were reading the shahada in your presence and trying to encourage you to read it with us. And you kept saying no. So he said to them that I wasn't saying no to you. Rather, Shaytan came to me and he said that Ahmad bin Hanbal has slipped away from me. That he's now out of my reach. So I kept saying to Shaytan, no, no, not until the last breath making my body. As long as I'm alive, I'm not going. I'm like, you know, there's no security, there's no aman. I, you could, Shaytan could attack you at any point. This is the lesson of the walamaha, that you never get too comfortable with yourself. Anyway, so here, Allah Mashabir Ahmad Uthmani, and his Matamunim also narrates, حدث الناس بما يعرفون حدث الناس بما يعرفون أتحبون أن يكذب الله ورسوله that narrate to that narrate that to people which they are familiar with because if you narrate something that they're unfamiliar with they will say it's a lie or they'll reject it or they won't act upon it so do you want the message of Allah and His Messenger to be rejected? No. Under بما يعرفون والمراد بقوله بما يعرفون أي يفهمون When we say narrate to people what they know that doesn't mean that if there's something they don't know don't share it with them there are many things that people don't know and until you don't teach they won't know so if you stick to teaching what they already know you're defeating the purpose of education so he says, بِمَا يَعْرِفُونَ أَيْ مَا يَفْهَمُونَ 
that means is to teach people what they have the capacity to understand, whether they can understand it or not. So sometimes you'll have a conversation, even with a senior, with an elder. Another lesson that I've learned in life, that you're with your own parents, maybe in a very heated conversation. And there are moments where you realize that this conversation isn't going anywhere. This is, we're at a dead end. We're not getting anywhere. At this point, if I continue arguing and quoting ayat of the Quran, and quoting uh, the, you know, a hadith of Rasulullah and refutation of my senior, my elder, there's a possibility this person might engage in kufr if they do not of this stuff, if they reject it. So even though I may lose this argument and debate, for the sake of the iman of the person in front of me, it's better for me to stop right here, that we're done. I've explained my issue thoroughly. I've explained the arguments thoroughly. Now it seems as if what I'm saying is beyond your comprehension. Again, not an arrogant statement, but a matter-of-fact statement. So, I'm going, to dis I'm going to disengage here. We're done. We're not doing this anymore. That speak to each person according to their own understanding. I was once in India, and um, there were some family members. They said, oh, there is a scholar from America here. So they all gathered together. The women specifically. So they got all excited. Oh, there's a, you know. Um, so they asked questions anyway. I'm sure they started asking questions. So one person asked me a, a question. So, Sheikh, what's your opinion on, what's the Islamic opinion on this issue? So, as per my habit, I generally like to um, look at an issue from different angles. So, therefore, the conclusion we come to is uh, it's elaborate. The student appreciates it. So, I started by saying that, you know, this is the issue. This is the problem with the issue. These are the opinions of the different jurists on the issue. However, this is the position that, inshallah, if Allah subhanahu wa accepts, is probably the most appropriate one. So I presented the whole thing. So the, the, the sister that was in front of me, she, she spoke on behalf of all the sisters. And her statement was, that was very confusing. Can you please tell us yes or no? Literally, that's what she said. She said, that was very confusing. We did not benefit from that. Whatever you were doing there, good for you. Like, keep doing that stuff, but can you plus? And I remember her statement was, Simple. Give us a yes or no. We don't want anything else. Can we do it or not? And at that point, it hit me. It's a very, very important uh, incident for me. It hit me that the way I would answer a question to a crowd in America is very different from the way a question is answered in another country. And this is why we have no business. I have no business answering questions here. No business at all. And they had other questions, and I said, well, I'm going to excuse myself from this. This is not appropriate. Uh, I think I'm going to be a fitna and cause harm to you more than anything. So, uh, there are other ulama here locally, it's best that you ask them so they can answer you accordingly. That we don't have the answers to the world. Neither should we act like we do. Go ahead. Isallah would answer the questions of each person according to what was important and appropriate in his situation. Bukhari Muslim Mary on the authority of Anas Malik said, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam 
was on his camel, and Mu'adh bin Jabal was sitting directly behind him. Rasulullah said to him, O Mu'adh, he replied, Here I am, O Rasulullah, and I am pleased to be with you. Rasulullah said, O Mu'adh, he replied, Here this I am. This is also a lesson. There's also an education of Allah right here. Ya Mu'adh, Labbaik Ya Rasulullah Ya Mu'adh, Labbaik Ya Rasulullah Ya Mu'adh. He could have answered him on the first, Ya Mu'adh. The Prophet said, O oh, Mu'adh, he responded, I'm here. The Prophet could have answered, but he didn't. He held it back. And he called him again, and called him again, gathering his attention. That Aisha, are you listening? Aisha, Aisha, are you listening? And she said, yeah, I'm listening. Tell me, Shaykh, what's going on? So then you give that person the answer. Yes. Rasulullah said, and his answer is beautiful too. Labbaika ya Rasulullah My undivided attention with pleasure and joy is at your feet, O Messenger of Allah. Drop it. I'm here for you. Yes, this vessel is open for you. Go ahead. Rasulullah said, When a person sincerely testifies that there is none worthy of worship but Allah, and that Muhammad is his servant and messenger, Allah Ta'ala makes him forbidden to the hellfire. It's interesting, Nabi when he said this man that Abdin Yashadu an la ilaha illallah wa anna Muhammad Rasulullah min sidqam min qalbihi he added the statement that there is not a servant who testifies in the oneness of Allah in the risala of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu sidqam min qalbihi what does that mean? sincere like that person really means it and when someone really means it they act upon the demands of that statement where that person then, what the shahada necessitates, they fully embody it. That should I not go and tell other people, everyone will rejoice and celebrate. What an amazing news to share. And for all of us, the truth is that there's joy in this, that inshallah, Jannah awaits us all. You just have to believe in your iman and your heart. You have to really believe in Allah and confirm with your heart. Go ahead. Mu'adh eventually informed the people about him at the time of his death, fearing that if he did not inform them, he would be committing a sin of concealing knowledge. In other words, do not give them these glad tidings because they will then abstain from good actions by relying on the outward meaning of these words which is that mere testimony to the oneness of Allah Ta'ala and the Prophet of the Rasulullah is sufficient for salvation from the hellfire. They will not realize that the actual purpose is to utter these two testimonies while fulfilling their obligations and obedience to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and His Messenger Sallallahu in all injunctions and regulations. This hadith shows that complex knowledge should only be conveyed to people who have the ability and intelligence to clearly understand it. Such knowledge should not be imparted to those who are not worthy of it and who may, who may possibly become lax due to their lack of understanding. Harun Ibn Rajab said, the ulama say it can be deduced from this prohibition to Mu'adh not to convey these glad tidings lest the people become lax, that those ahadith which contain concessions should not be mentioned openly to the masses so that they do not misunderstand their actual purpose. Mu'adh heard such ahadith but these only serve to increase his efforts in doing good deeds and in fearing Allah Ta'ala. Those who have not reached his rank 
may very well become lax, uh, lax by relying solely on the outward meaning of this hadith. This approach of abstaining from narrating every single hadith to all people continued among the Sahaba and the scholars who came after them. Imam Bukhari narrates from Ali who said, narrate to the people what they are acquainted with. Would you like Allah Ta'ala and His Messenger وسلم, to be rejected? Adam ibn Abi Iyas adds the words and leave out what they do not know to this hadith. The phrase, what they are acquainted with, refers to what they understand, while the phrase, what they do not know, refers to what is confusing for them to understand. We've covered all of these points. I think we're, we're good here. Um, um, just in, in summary, as we wrap up this, uh, this narration, Imam Ghazali, we covered this in class in the other day, in the, at the seminary, when talking about the wallahi of the mutahallim and the muallim, when talking about the responsibility of the student and teacher the beginning, uh, in the beginning of his book. He writes there, وَمِنْ وَضَائِفِ الْمُعَلِّمِ أَنْ يَخْتَسِرَ بِالْمُتَعَلِّمِ عَلَى That this is the responsibility, the duty of the teacher. That you stop where the benefit stops. Right? So don't go beyond that. You're teaching a Sunday school class and the students there are barely able to hold on to their iman. Don't take them to controversial things. Wait to build their iman and then talk about the controversial things that they will need to navigate the mess of life. But talk to them and teach them according to what will benefit them. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us this insight and allow us to be for people who have wisdom when we uh, teach the deen. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala